Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment. will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together. To debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Hey guys, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Today we have a lot to talk about. Of course, things are still going on overseas in Afghanistan. Vince, what do we have today and who's going to help us out? We got a great guest today. Alex Pletsis is an author at The Federalist. He's a national security professional, Bronze Star recipient, a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and of late, one of the guys who's been a part of this digital Dunkirk initiative uh, designed to get people out of Afghanistan, whether it be Americans or Afghan allies. Uh, he's been working uh, really hard behind the scenes to do that. And uh, we wanted to tell one of these, uh, I think, positive stories uh, of the efforts that uh, are involved in trying to get our people out of Afghanistan. Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. Morning, Vince. Morning, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Hey, Thank you. Would, break it down for us, would you, Alex, just to give people a sense of, you know, what is this Digital Dunkirk Initiative? What sure. have you been trying to do and how'd you get involved in it? Sure. Um, uh, this is going to sound strange to a lot of people for a bunch of civilians to all of a sudden be involved in the evacuation of the uh, uh, of Afghanistan for non-combatants, at least after 20 years of warfare. But it's actually kind of a natural manifestation of the evolution of technology and warfare. Like what we're doing now simply wouldn't have been possible 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, the beginning of these wars, uh, Gulf War, Vietnam, World War II, just, it couldn't have happened the way that we did here. So the closest thing anybody could find in terms of the language would be the, uh, the evacuation of Dunkirk, where the British soldiers were trapped. And the British government, uh, I think at the time, uh, Winston Churchill was first, first I don't know if he's the PM, at the, I believe he's PM at the time. Anyway, they asked for all of the civilian ships that were capable in, in southern England to, uh, to go down to the coast in Dunkirk to help evacuate the soldiers, or else the entirety of the British army would have been lost and they would have had no way to defend the homeland. So in this case, Digital Dunkirk refers to what's become... Um, a confederation of national security professionals. There's hundreds of us. We don't want to get into the exact uh, number of folks. There's still, the stories are all kind of being recorded in the names. Uh, some current, some former uh, intelligence professionals, uh, Department of Defense, State Department. Um, and virtually all of us have been in Afghanistan over the last 20 years at one point or another. And where we've come in and sort of helped is there's an official U.S. government uh, evacuation operation that took place, right? So this was not some lone cowboy operation, people trying to play James Bond. This is State Department and DOD are securing the airfield, they're processing the paperwork, and they're flying people out. And they're telling people, hey, you who fall into this category, U.S. citizen, green card holder, SIV, visa applicant, whoever you are, if you fall in these categories on any particular day, because things were changing constantly, we need you at this location with this paperwork to get through the gates to get into the airfield. Um, it, it was you know, kind of a fiasco, uh, in a sense on the ground is not to be expected, uh, you know, as you're withdrawing forces from the country. And so the airfield was surrounded and swarmed by people. It was impossible to get in. The Taliban were not a uniformed army with a disciplined command and control element. So trying to get through checkpoints was impossible. They were rejecting U.S. citizens at one point at different places and green card holders. So basically what we were doing, uh, just to kind of summarize the high level, is kind of fell into a couple of different categories. A lot of these folks were, um, you know, dual citizens who were caught up, uh, you know, at going to a wedding or visiting a sick relative or whatever was going on, or they uh, just happened to be there for one reason or another. And all of a sudden they find themselves behind Taliban lines and they, there's a massive rush to get to the airport. And typical with any government, by the way, uh, you're in the middle of a national security emergency. Here's some paperwork we need you to fill out. Here's a spreadsheet, here's a form. And you can imagine somebody with a cell phone and no charger in the middle of Kabul who's fleeing their home has no idea how to deal with any of this. So where we came in is like natural middlemen. The government was trying to give and, and provide instructions and run an evacuation operation. And you've got a bunch of civilians who have absolutely no idea what this stuff means physical locations given in English that would be like military references to gates and all this. Like, where, where is that? How does a local civilian try to figure that out? So in some cases, it was like administrative support, helping to fill out paperwork and get them there, ensuring that every last one that contacted us was officially registered with the State Department because we didn't want to be doing any rogue operations here, right? Helping them navigate through the city, in some cases, geographically, uh, through some digital tools, and I won't get into specifics there, helping to avoid checkpoints. Uh, and then... Um, some of it was a little bit more involved. Uh, and one of those cases, um, which we can talk about uh, coming events, depending on and, and, and Jason, what you guys wanted to discuss, involved four underage uh, children who had no paperwork. Uh, and that that was a little bit more like a movie script in the end afterwards. I'm still trying to process how we did all this, but they're, they're safely in the U.S. Jason, go ahead, sir. Yeah, so 
Um, I'm wondering how, how far reaching is this? Uh, so this is just uh, the American, you know, these are just American former um, officials in intelligence and in the State Department. These, this doesn't include people who are British or French. Um, and is there like a global network that you guys are working within or is it just within uh, with the American government? So we do have connections into other allied nations and efforts that they were running uh, off the side. The, the organizations we're working with are purely Americans at this point. Um, so within Digital Dunkirk was actually founded by a West Point graduate is how it started. I got involved because I got uh, I was actually in Italy two weeks ago on vacation. I sound like a spoiled brat. And down on the Amalfi Coast, life is good. And then Kabul starts collapsing. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm tweeting about it. Uh, and I've been obnoxious about tweeting about the situation for months. And I started getting people replying. And I got this interpreter who he's like, Alex, you remember me. I work for you at, you know, so-and-so. I'm like, Dude, I, first of all, I wasn't a Green Beret. I was not your detachment commander. And I, I was never in Kandahar. I was there in 2012. The timelines don't add up. But come to find out, the guy was real. His story was legit. I happened to look exactly like his Special Forces Detachment Commander. So God help whoever that poor guy is. <laughs> and we have the same first name, similar last name. And so I said, listen, I don't know who you are, but I'll help you out. And so I was able to vet the paperwork and find out he had been a Special Forces interpreter for years and a rock star at that. So Taliban showed up at his house in Kandahar. But this is all in Italy. I'm on the Amalfi Coast sitting in a hotel room in Positano. My wife's ready to murder me at this point. And um, uh, I was able to figure out how to get him from Kandahar to Kabul. And then from there, he's able to bring his six children and his wife, because um, while I was there, he basically called and said, hey, Taliban showed up at the house and they said that we're, they're going to slaughter me uh, when they find me. They cursed him out and, and the family because he wasn't there. And they, they called him, quote, a son of Biden and a conspirator. Uh, and that when they got him, they'd slaughter him. And they left a voicemail saying the same thing. So got him from Kandahar into Kabul and the family was there. And then so while that was ongoing, I now had to travel back to the U.S. I get to the airport in Rome and we're, we're, we're uh, trying to get on to go, you know, get through security, everything else. And I'm still getting messages from Afghanistan about what's going on. And I turn around and about 75 to 100 yards away, I see um, what I what's clearly a woman who got a mask on and with like black hair wavy off to the side with a purple streak down the center. And I said, my God, that's Rosa DeLauro. And so she's the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, also from Connecticut, uh, where I happen to live. And so I went right up to her, dropped my mask for so she could see who I was and said, hey, Rose, I need to talk to you. And I was able to play the voicemail for her from, from several interpreters. They're like, hey, the Taliban's at my house. They're going to cut my head off. Please get me out of here. Because the story we're hearing out of the administration was that there was no issue with these folks leaving. So I wanted to ensure that a senior Democrat was who had connections in the White House and the administration could hear with her own ears. Like, this is not, this is not partisan. These are not Republicans trying to beat up on the admin. These people are in danger and they need help. So anyway, with the end of that, I was able to get him through some government connections, through some sensitive employees, I'll put it that way, to get access to the airfield. And now he and his family are in Texas. And so they're at a military base there and they are um, basically going to spend two weeks processing. Uh, they had gone through all their security background checks to make sure that they had been vetted because they were part of the SIV applicant process, which requires um, security background checks through FBI, NSA, CIA and DHS. Uh, in order to get cleared. Now, those are the ones who are the SIVs. I realize a lot of the folks who, who came over were not, but I can at least speak to the SIV side in terms of vetting. And so after that, and I was kind of tweeting about it, I asked uh, folks uh, basically if they had people who were stuck to contact me, and that's what they ended up doing. And so I had a bunch of friends I'd worked with said, hey, we, there's this thing called Digital Dunkirk. Uh, you obviously figured out you can help people. Why don't you get involved? And so that's how I got roped in. So I, I have one follow-up question. Can you kind sure. of pay, paint the picture in terms of, the distance between Kandahar and Kabul and how these people were being taken from Kandahar to Kabul, Kabul. Uh -huh. was there, you know, how did they get a ride? You know, how did, what did that look like? Was it kind of like underground railroad type of thing or were they just so you know, picked up in a military vehicle or how did that work? No, it's a great question. And so no, no military vehicles involved. Um, there are in some cases, and that's the, the phrase that's been used, it's been an underground railroad because it is smuggling people, you know, behind closed doors away from, the government, um, you know, it's just, and I can't find anybody uh, uh, close to uh, fascist there, as you talked about, right, between uh, the Underground Railroad, the way that the, uh, the folks were treated in this country, and the way the Taliban treated some of these folks. They've actually used that phrase themselves a lot, which is interesting that they have that knowledge of American history to call it the uh, Underground Railroad. Yeah. A lot of Americans don't have that knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> so, which I think is pretty they'll cool. They'll fit in, right? That. They'll fit in pretty good in Texas to probably yeah. have more. Threw me, threw me for a loop. He's like, hey, man, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to work the Underground Railroad. What the hell are you talking about? That's amazing <laughs> that you even know what that is. So in his particular case, they were um, 
they were uh, civilian vehicles that were used. Um, and basically it's a 10 hour trek from Kandahar to Kabul. Um, I didn't have to use any of my contacts to help move him. I did have to use them to get him in the airport um, and get him out of there. Um, there. I mean, the government was not sending people out to go get people. There were a few rare occasions where you had helicopter borne missions that were outside. My understanding is that the administration, uh, the guidance internally was that they quote, didn't want another Black Hawk down incident. And so the thought was that our folks were best inside the airport and then, you know, getting people there was the right way to go about it, which is, you know, debatable and everybody can get into the policy behind that because uh, we do tell folks that we're stuck. I think um, what the most interesting thing for all of this was after the kids, excuse me, after the, uh, I got the interpreter uh, Abdul out, uh, again, he's now in Texas, uh, last Tuesday, I got a text from Jake Tapper at CNN, probably about just about three o'clock in the afternoon and said, hey, um, I've got these. First of all, he gave me like four or five families um, and, the, and we were able to contact them. We were able to find them in downtown Kabul. Uh, all of them basically said, hey, we're, uh, you know, we're under under duress. You know, we're not safe where we are. So we arranged for clandestine transportation to pick them up, bring them to safe locations. And then from safe locations, we were able to consolidate them and bring them to the airfield. Um, at that point during the evacuation, the Taliban were being a royal pain in the ass. Uh, if you didn't have passports, if you only had green cards, they were stopping people at checkpoints. You couldn't get to certain parts of the airfield. And then on top of it, most of the Americans were being processed through uh, Abbey Gate near the Barron Hotels, where the State Department had told folks to show up um, because you, you got to have somewhere to show up at the airport. So this is not a knock on our people in terms of what they were doing. But we created a strategic choke point in the middle of the city where the only way out of the country is through that airfield. And so it basically put a homing beacon on a location for every two bit, you know, uh, Islamic fundamentalist whack job who wanted to kill Americans. The only thing that we've been good with is that the Taliban and ISIS-K or the Khorasan group, which is the ICE, the Islamic State affiliate in Afghanistan, don't get along. They've got some fundamental disagreements about religion, like, for example, like gravestones and like praying at people's graves, like praying to God. They consider that to be sacrilegious and, and idolatry. And so... They fight over stuff and they've been fighting about it. So the Taliban have an interest, just like Qaddafi did in Libya or Saddam in Iraq, of keeping all the uh, the fundamentals at bay because it posed a threat to their uh, their rule. So almost the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So anyway, the I get these four kids in addition to the rest of these families. And this one was interesting. So the four children uh, and their mother and father lived in Kabul. The father was assassinated uh, and has been missing uh, after working for U.S. forces. Mother takes her four children across the border into Pakistan, and she applies for asylum to the United States. While she's in the final stages of the asylum process, the husband's family shows up, particularly one of his brothers, and culturally said, you know, that the kids belong to the male side of the family. Their hours were taking them back to Kabul and basically kidnapped them uh, and using cultural you know, norms as the pressure point to get them back. She essentially had now didn't have her children, couldn't really get back to Kabul to, to do anything about it. And so she came to the United States to file the paperwork legally to get them out of Afghanistan. So now I've got these four kids. I'm like, okay, what's the rest of the story? Come to find out the uncle, the dirtbag, abandoned them two weeks ago. Oldest one is 16, youngest one is six, three of them under the age of 12. They have no American paperwork. They have no passports. They have no, no one to watch over them. They're trapped in an, in an apartment in Kabul, with no food and no weapons, right? So they're prime targets, not only for violence, but for sex trafficking and all kinds of other awful stuff that goes on. And so... Once I got a hold of their mother up in Albany and got permission from her to work the case, I started working through my, my network of folks. And within 20 minutes, we had dispatched folks uh, to go arrange for a clandestine meet for them to be picked up and, and transported, um, trying to explain tradecraft to eight and 10-year-old children via phone call relay with their mother in Albany to ensure that they got into the right vehicle and they weren't going to be trafficked um, proved more difficult <laughs> than you can imagine. So from there, once we get them in the safe house, because the kids, there were a couple issues during the transport process, just hiccups and they're young kids, right? Tell the guards, hey guys, don't, they can't be able to let out the safe location. Can't happen. They're young kids. He took it literally. So once we, we figured out how to arrange for transportation to get everybody removed from their safe locations, we had them in and then consolidated for transport at the airport, the guard didn't want to let them out. And so after an hour of fighting, I finally got on the phone with him. I, I mean, this part was made up, but I basically said to him, listen, I am 10 minutes away at the airport. And if I have to show up at that house to get those kids out of there, I'm, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Like, those are what your options are if you hold another American against their will. And mysteriously, that worked. And he let them out. So they end up basically getting consolidated. We get them near the airport. And a lot of folks are like, oh, you know, this cloak and dagger nonsense. And you guys are risking people. They could have just gone through the gate. First of all, they couldn't have. The kids had no paperwork. So they couldn't have been let through the Taliban checkpoints. We were working to try to get through the U.S. government to do something about it. At that point, nobody nobody could. Went to the White House, CIA, state, DOD, everybody and their mother was informed. 
And so basically, once we got him outside the airport, we I was we were aware of the the threat uh, to, the, to the gate that ended up taking the lives of 13 service members. So we knew that there was a, uh, a bomb threat that had been called, that had been basically reported that there was going to be a, an attack. So knowing that the Americans were being processed on one particular side of the airfield, we had them located somewhere else in a safe location nearby. And then began the 24-hour race to get the gate open. The most difficult part of all is forget the clandestine meetups and pickups and safe locations all arranged from my living room here and then through friends I worked with on the team in, in D.C. Get the gate open. It eventually took a three-way call with an intelligence officer stationed in a third country to call one of his colleagues at the airfield for us to get the gate open. And that's how we eventually got them in. So in total from that operation, we were able to get 40, 40 folks out. Uh, four American families plus these four underage children, and they're all now successfully back in the United States um, within five days of getting those text messages. And now all that information and my partner in crime through the whole week was Jake Tapper at CNN. Wow, incredible! Amazing. Have those child have those children be been reunited with their mother? They have actually. Um, not last night, the night before, I drove to Albany, New York, um, and I got a call from the attorney and the mother because I needed all the legal paperwork to get them manifested on the flights, working through our intelligence and State Department folks. And they said, hey, um, the mom really wants to see you and the kids. Can you come to Albany? So I drove from Connecticut to Albany uh, the night before last um, for the flight that came in. And culturally, like you don't you don't touch women in, 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 a, in the conservative uh, Afghan culture. Right? And it's considered yeah. taboo, especially for a conservative Islamic uh, nations. It's just, you know, culture wise at customs. You don't you don't do that. Right. Um, and so I, I basically gave the typical like hand over the heart and like wave for hello when I saw them. And the mom came running up. She gave me a huge bear hug, kind of collapsed my arms and started crying. Uh, and I can try to play, uh, you know, former military tough guy, but I just, I lost it, dude. I mean, I, that was the most yeah. emotional moment I've had in God knows how long. And uh, first time those kids have had a mother in, you know, five years, um, you know, they haven't been safe. They've been by themselves. And so to have them now stateside reunited with their mother and kind of having everything come to fruition was uh was incredible. And for somebody who suffered from PTSD for a number of years, um, you know, and, and took a while to kind of get through all that, um, you know, typical, not the typical story, drinking all the other, you know, stupid things that people do to try to self-medicate because nobody wants to deal with it. Um, this was probably the most meaningful contribution I think I've had probably between the wars, uh, you know, getting these people out. And then uh, I think it helped serve as some form of closure, to be honest with you. Yeah. Incredible. And, and the uncle that abandoned them he is afghan or is that's he correct american no he was afghan only only the mother is an american she's a green card holder in, in new york the rest of the family they're all extended family they're afghans mm. i see you know we're hearing uh stories now uh in light of the military leaving uh this week that there are still thousands of people behind every everybody from green card holders to american citizens numbering in just a couple hundred uh, to many afghan allies who still remain in the country what is the situation right. like now for, for those people? And are you and the digital Dunkirk guys still in touch with people in the country? We are. We're not done. Um, the first thing we tell everybody is, again, because we want to make sure that this is not some lone cowboy operation of people. You know, First of all, vet who you're talking to. Make sure that these people are legit. Um, there's enough people who uh, like to wear uh, cargo pants and camouflage baseball hats, and they want to play hero who have no idea what the hell they're doing. Uh, and they mean well, but um, you know, you just, I just tell folks to be careful who they're speaking to. In terms of the digital Dunkirk folks, yes, yeah, so we're still in touch. We're still working. Um, at this point, the uh, I was just uh, informed a Qatari uh, technical team arrived at the airport in Kabul this morning because right now, once we left, the airport's essentially non-functional. There's no air traffic control, so nobody can fly in and out of there. So, of course, the natural is like looking at ground options to get out or other flights. Um, but the Taliban have been in discussions with the Qataris as well as the Turkish government about working together to reopen the airport because they lack the technical expertise to do so. Um, you know, I've been kind of a wise ass about it, but I think everybody's seen the videos of the, the Talibs basically trying to figure out how to use a trampoline this week, never mind run an airfield. So um, I think, you know, they've made comments, you know, Taliban senior leadership, uh, and they've entered into an agreement, at least uh, commitment with 97 nations that was released by the State Department and the UN to let people leave once commercial flights resume. So essentially, the administration's position at this point is that if you have an American passport or green card, once commercial flights resume, you'll be allowed to leave. Um, the State Department estimate that they put out for U.S. citizens who remain there trying to get out is about 250. What I can tell you is that after that number was released some probably 36 hours ago now, I've been contacted by six Americans, either directly or by family members uh, as a result of the work we're doing. And my first question is, OK, guys, uh, if you register with the State Department, the answer is no. Um, so the State Department's at the mercy of whoever's in the country or their relatives basically saying, hey, we got an American who's stuck because if that, that doesn't happen, they have no idea that they're there. It's impossible. 
So I think the 250 figure is off. The other thing is that when we discuss like hostage rescue, which used to be part of my portfolio at the Pentagon, right, and options that we have available for, for rescue opportunities, there's, there's legal parameters that kind of govern all of that, right? And so the definition of, of people that we usually work to rescue or help are U.S. persons, which includes U.S. citizens and LPRs, legal permanent residents, or green card holders. The, very, the language they're using right now is very specific to U.S. citizens. I can tell you that green card holders had a much more difficult time than U.S. passport holders getting into the office. There are a boatload of green card holders that we were working with as well to try to get out. So I'm curious at this point whether the State Department's numbers even include the green card holders, because if that's the case, the number is significantly higher than 250, right? So that's that's one point. Yeah, I mean, the second the, thing is, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead, Jason. Go ahead. Well, the, the estimate that I saw was 100 to 200. So they're, they're even estimating lower. At least that was the, the number that I saw on CBS News this morning. So they're okay. estimating even lower. Um, and you're saying that it could be, you know, upwards of more than 250? Yeah, easily. And I, I mean, I think the, the differentiator here is I've, I've been trying to figure out if somebody's going to be able to press the State Department to get a clear answer. They're using the term U.S. citizens for a reason. Right. So are you guys using that purposefully and not including green card holders? Because if you are, right, what's the number of green card holders? And that's um, the term, again, that falls under U.S. persons, which covers green card holders and U.S. citizens. So uh, to me, that, that there is a difference, obviously, between the two. One's a permanent resident, one's a, a citizen. But our obligation to them should be the same at that point. So definitely curious if, if uh, anybody's going to be able to get that out of state. Um, and again, they say they're down to 100 or 200 now. There was, a, there was a last minute push to get people out. I mean, we were literally guiding people to the airport based on contacts with DOD and state um, up until the hour before the last plane left. Um, and it was like, uh, I mean, I don't want to use the term game because it's awful because uh, it's very serious. People's lives are here. But it was basically trying to game the Taliban. Like, how do we get into the damn airport? They're on lists. We've contacted DOD, we've contacted state. They're where they're inbound. They're trying to get people out there to get them. And at one point, the Taliban just became uncooperative. And they were, uh, you know, they were not letting people through. Yeah, they were being kind of wise asses about it. One of the families, they said, like, if they really cared about you, they'd send a bus out to come get you. Meanwhile, they're on a list and their State Department diplomats trying to get to them. So it started out with everybody who, who's able to leave with the private paperwork and leave. And the Taliban said, okay, None of you with Afghan passports who are not U.S. citizens or green card holders can leave. That effectively meant the 22,000 SIV holders, special immigrant visas, those are the people who worked with us as interpreters and have been uh, and have gone through the vetting process and the 50,000 of their family members, plus the 10 to 15,000 Americans that were there. So we started out with this with an understanding there was 100,000 people that we had to get out of there. We were never going to conduct an evacuation for the entire civilian populace of Afghanistan. That was never the, the purpose. But what ended up happening in the beginning is you had a bunch of civilians rush the airfield. And rumors started circulating in Kabul that if you can get in the airfield, you get a free ride to America. So everybody and their mother was trying to get in there. And then we saw in the beginning what happened with the Afghans even building to ride on the wheel wells of these aircraft, um, you know, when the security situation at the airport was horrendous and people were killed. A member of the national soccer team and other people literally fell out of the wheel well and dropped to their deaths over houses in Kabul. So if that tells you what, what fear for your life looks like, when was the last time we saw people do something like that? I mean, I don't want to make a 9-11 comparison inappropriately, but there were people that made a conscious decision to jump to their own deaths rather than burn to death at the World Trade Center because the, they, you know, the, the fear of burning to death and what would have happened and the pain and suffering would have been worse than just jumping. And people made that conscious decision. You had people who were so fearful of what the Taliban were going to do to them when they got their hands on them based on working with us, that they were willing to hang on to the wheel well of a moving C-17 cargo aircraft on a runway and take a chance that somehow they'd survive a 35,000 foot you know, climb in a military aircraft. Uh, I mean, if that doesn't scream desperation, I don't know what does. So now with that in mind, and especially that desperation to get away from the forces now in charge of Afghanistan, the Taliban, uh, we heard from the president this week that uh, a lot of the next steps are going to rely on trusting the Taliban in order to get additional people out of the country to right. include the hundreds of Americans that we believe are there the thousands of green card holders, potentially the New York Times reporting that they believe the numbers are in the thousands and yep. the tens of thousands of other Afghan allies that we might be interested in getting out of the country. Um, what does that mean to you, this idea that we're going to have to trust the Taliban for this going forward? So, I mean, at some point, the Taliban, I mean, they're, they're a legitimate government. They've taken back over. They're in charge, whether we want to accept that or not. So at, at the executive ruling council level, the Taliban, I genuinely believe that they're trying to do the right thing and people are going to think I'm insane for saying that, but just kind of hear me out for a second. They've had 20 years of advanced infrastructure that's been built at billions of American dollars that have gone into doing this, right? 
Uh, things have been functioning better. Yes, there's been a more healthy level of corruption because they, everybody was on the take. It used to be that it was under the table in an envelope and not talked about, and now the corruption is just blatantly obvious, right? So they're going to be, people are expecting now for them to deal with the corruption as well as maintain similar levels of service that they're used to. And so now they got a problem. They don't have the technical expertise. They don't have the money. They need to behave on an international stage in order to get the, the funding and everything else they need to keep the country running without having a revolt on their hands, which I think they have a functional understanding of to a certain extent, right? They also understand the repercussions of what happens if they hurt American citizens, which I think is why they were so keen on letting our people go and, and you know getting the passport holders out because they quite frankly didn't want to deal with us because I think they've seen from some of the uh, you know past events whether it be you know South Sudan or other areas where we've seen uh, you know uh, genocidal activities or violence that we're not always going to get involved but if there's U.S. citizens hurt there's more political pressure domestically for us to do stuff and so I think they made a conscious decision which was intelligent to, from their perspective to let our folks out. The problem that I have, like you mentioned, is that there's all the vulnerable Afghans are left, plus the U.S. citizens are green card holders. ISIS Khorasan Group, the Islamic State in Afghanistan, was able to conduct a complex suicide attack at the airport on short notice, which included multiple bombers and small arms. They had a second wave of bombers on the way to the airport that were intercepted by a U.S. missile, and there was some collateral damage that was reported about civilians in the area from the subsequent explosions of the vests going off. That all happened within a matter of days, right? So they're still sophisticated enough to have access to uh, the materials to construct the weapons, to, to put together attack plans, to give orders, to have people willing to do it. So we know that they're active. We saw a video of, of uh, Osama's security chief now coming right back into the air, uh, coming back into country, kind of riding back in the open, not even hiding anymore. So between Al Qaeda, between ISIS and between other uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups that are operating the country, there's a real terror threat there, right? So it begs the question about why we left a leave behind counterterrorism force in Iraq and Syria to make sure ISIS didn't come back there. But we've got active groups operating in Afghanistan and we didn't. And I'm not arguing that we should or shouldn't have in terms of, you know, people saying, well, the forever wars then go on for forever. A conscious decision was made to leave forces in Iraq and Syria because somebody determined that there was a residual terrorism threat that needed to be dealt with. For whatever reason, the same calculus didn't apply to Afghanistan and everybody's gone. So my biggest fear now is having someone who dealt with hostage um, policy at the Pentagon. I had that as part of my, my last job when I left about five years ago. I had the hostage rescue as part of my policy oversight. I was also on President Obama's hostage policy review team. I am very, very worried that those people end up becoming uh, prime candidates for hostages, not by the Taliban, but by the other Islamic groups that are running around there. Additionally, um, you know, a lot of the Afghans that are there, as you mentioned, Vince, have green cards and some are American citizens, but they're dual citizens. So they ethnically, they, they look like Afghans in terms of their physical makeup. Ethnically, they dress the same. They, their native language will be one of the Afghan languages, Dari, Pashto, one of them. And so when they encounter members of the Taliban in the rank and file, because they're not a uniformed army with a disciplined chain of command, there's a good chance they still get beaten or shot or whatever else happens. Because, you know, when they're interacting with people, they're not saying, hey, can I please see your American passport? They're just going to give you a smack or hit you with a whip or whatever they're doing if they don't like your behavior. So... I think there's definitely a possibility for some violence against Americans by Talibs who are not, you know, under control, and they're they're very and very much in danger and, and potential for for hostage situation, and that's what I fear right now. We have no functioning embassy, no diplomats, and no military on the ground at all, and what they're calling an over the horizon force. The only way to fly in from the south is a very narrow air air corridor over Pakistan that the Pakistanis have let us use for years. It's very and it's very specific and narrow. And there is an opportunity to get in from some of the caucus states to the north, right? But then you've got, um, or the Central Asian states, rather. But we've got very high mountains and everything else, and we don't have refuel capabilities in countries. So getting them in by helicopter or however folks get in and then get a rescue force in and get them out. This is not easy anymore. There's no more quick reaction force that goes. These are hours-long uh, you know, deployments to get forces into country once they're spun up, once there's confirmed intelligence where somebody is. So the, the, we are not in the same position we were as of even two weeks ago to be able to rescue people. This is a very precarious, very dangerous situation. So the, the Biden administration says that they have leverage over the, over the Taliban. Um, and the other, so I have two questions. One mm -hmm. is about the Biden administration saying that mm -hmm. they have leverage. Do they actually have leverage? Um, yep. Of course, we see the country is kind of devolving right now in terms of their financial institutions, right. you know, and, and like you said, they don't really have the institutional knowledge to be able to run banks and, and things and keep things going. <clears throat> My other question is more related to the future relationship that you believe that the 
United States should have with the Taliban? Should we have an embassy? Should we have diplomatic relations with uh, a group that we know uh, in the past, at least, has committed human rights violations? Uh, Should we, you know, engage with them diplomatically moving forward? Uh, Would that be a good protection for the people that you're saying, the green card holders, the American, the dual citizens in Afghanistan for us to build those kind of diplomatic relations? Or should we stay away from Afghanistan because we know that the Taliban is committing human, you know, at least in the past, has committed human rights atrocities? So I think it's a brilliant question. Um, the second one's a little longer to answer, and I think it's worth discussing because it hits a higher point, uh, and I think you, you're getting at something pretty significant. The first question is much easier to answer. Yes, they do have some leverage in the sense, as you mentioned, and we were just talking about in terms of cash and technical prowess and know-how, and the Taliban do seek them to a certain extent in recognition on the international stage that they're a legitimate government, they want to be seen as being in power again, and so they do need support from those types of things. How much that leverage actually means depends on the what's in it for me on the Taliban side as they're evaluating it, right? Like, is if they're it's a carrot and a stick, right? Like the U.S. is going to dangle billions of dollars or access to international programs or this or that, and in return, we're going to be seeking some sort of policy concession. Hey, really nice if you wouldn't go shoot people in the face if you don't mind and like not beat pregnant women. That's cool if you could not do that. Thanks a lot, right? And for doing that, you know, is that worth a hundred billion dollars to them or whatever this ends up being? That's a calculation the Taliban are going to have to make. So for the president to make that statement, it's basically um, his assertion that through his team, they've done the calculations and determined that they believe that what they have to offer or withhold from the Taliban is enough to get some behavioral change out of them that they're looking for. So that's up to be that's yet to be seen whether the Taliban will do that, and whether their calculations or assertions that that's the case are true. Second piece is actually a fascinating question. and gets to a higher one that actually touches on a few other cases as well. So. If you look at the neocons, right, who got us involved in most of these messes over the years, uh, the thought process from them was that if we get in there, we overthrow these governments, even if there wasn't any WMD, you know, don't worry about it. I have an issue with that after two years of my life in a country I would describe as sunny, sandy and shitty with a GDP less than that of your local Starbucks on a good day. Like that's just the last place you want to end up getting shot at when there's no WMD. But they believe that with a new government coming in, you know, that the history will, you know, will be on our side and that, uh, you know, the, all the violence, everything goes with it was worth it because there'll be democracy in the Middle East. Um, I think we've seen what a chaotic hot mess that is right now. So that, that's, that speaks to the, the principle um, that we always sort of supported and nurtured, you know, uh, democracies or democratic movements in countries uh, to support the people's right to determine their own form of governance and how they choose to be governed and how they live their lives, right? There was an unwritten, unspoken decision that was rendered both by the Obama administration and then subsequently by the Trump administration, which was a fundamental shift in U.S. policy that has that is basically the bedrock of who we've been for nation for for hundreds of years as a nation, right? And that is, they made a conscious decision to leave Bashar al-Assad in power, right? We saw what happened in uh, in Egypt and then in Libya when we got rid of Gaddafi and it turned into a hot mess. You know the. Obama administration folks had spent years campaigning about how incredibly dumb the Bush administration folks were and how stupid they were for going into Iraq and all this. And, you know, we had no plan for post-Saddam governance and it was a disaster. And then CIA and DOD were like, there is no national security interest in overthrowing uh, Muammar Gaddafi. The whack job fundamentalists are a threat to his regime. He may be a dirtbag. He maybe have other things. He gave, he voluntarily gave up his weapons programs because he knew that we were going to bomb him if we didn't leave them alone. And the decision, no, 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 we need to support the revolutionary forces. And then there was no viable government waiting afterwards. And then you ended up with, you know, warring tribe, tribal factions, as well as terrorist groups. And then we end up with Benghazi afterwards and everything else. It was just a disaster, right? And so I think there was a recognition at some point that afterwards, when it came to Syria, we had an option, you know, to take out um, uh, Bashar al-Assad, especially after he was using uh, weapons of mass destruction against his own people. He was using chemical weapons. And so we made a determination to leave him in power because it was not quite the benevolent dictator because he's not benevolent. The guy's an animal. Uh, but the prospect of losing control of that area uh, when there's no government in waiting because all of these dictators, the first thing they do is disarm the population and to kind of destroy any you know opposition forces, which is why the only opposition political force in Egypt when um, when uh, Hosni Mubarak was gone. Right. And they ended up uh, having the Muslim, it was basically the Muslim Brotherhood that took over. The prospect of the people like that running the country was dangerous. You know, we didn't want people with, you know, relationships, with fundamentalist groups and everything else being in charge right. or lawlessness and allowing these terrorist groups to form or nurture and attack the United States. 
And so we left them in power and the Obama folks didn't listen. There was a push. And despite having the hindsight benefit of you know, hindsight being 2020, they still decided to go into Libya with no real post Gaddafi plan. And we saw the hot mess there. So anyway, we made a decision to leave um, Bashar al-Assad in power in Syria. That was a decision that was made by the Obama folks and Trump. It was unspoken, but the decision was it's better to leave him there than get him out. And I think a recognition that all of our forays in the Middle East over the last 20 years have not worked out the way we wanted. And so I think we came to a similar realization in Afghanistan that after 20 years, we fought to a stalemate. So if we're not going to defeat them militarily, right, and if we genuinely need their cooperation going forward, I don't think we have a choice but a diplomatic presence to a certain extent, right? Um, now, whether that's a full-fledged embassy or whether that ends up being um, a, uh, what would you call it, like an, an interest that's section, awesome. I believe is what they used to call it. Like for the Cubans, we used to have an, an interest section in like the Swiss embassy or things like that. That That's plausible. Right now, from what I'm being told, that the Taliban have requested a diplomatic presence because I think they realize that they're going to need engagement and support from us. Um, and for the benefit of those U.S. citizens who are there, I think we need to do that, especially in the short term. But as you mentioned, is it appropriate for a long-term relationship I think that largely depends on a few things, you know, security cooperation, whether or not they're they're committing these human rights violations and atrocities, as you mentioned. So in the short term, I don't think we have a choice because otherwise, who's going to do the visa processing? Who's going to who's going to do the consular assistance, everything else to get these people the hell out of there when we have nobody else there? Alex, yesterday, the president, uh, I thought, gave an interesting speech, uh, one that tried to take uh, the, the story in two directions. One was Uh, that this was about as good as it could be, the exit. And he tried to basically dress it up as a success. Uh, And then he suggested at the same time that if if you have problems with it, there are a bunch of people to blame. He suggested that the Afghan security forces are to blame, that they failed, that they didn't stay stay as long as anyone had expected. Um, He blamed his predecessor, Donald Trump, for the arrangement. Uh, He even invoked the release of prisoners in the arrangement with the Taliban, 5,000 prisoners, as a sign of things going south and strengthening the Taliban. Uh, without simultaneously acknowledging uh, his role in closing Bagram and releasing all of the prisoners there, uh, some of whom may have been involved in this ISIS K attack that killed our troops Correct. Uh, in Kabul. Um, I I thought, first of all, just to be clear, I thought yesterday's statement was, was pretty outrageous for a number of reasons. But yep. one of them that stuck out to me was that he held up the fact that we got 90% of American citizens who wanted to leave the country out as a sign of success. But that, of course, begged a dramatic question, which is, wait a second, why is it a success if we leave 10% of Americans who wanted to get out behind? Uh, in your view, did America, did America fail its own citizens uh, this week and in, over, the, over these last few months? You know, This ethos of never leave a man behind, voiced many times by Joe Biden on the campaign trail, certainly. Uh, it, seems we've, it seems we've failed in that. And, uh, and I'm troubled by that. And I, I think a lot of the media coverage that we're seeing right now uh, is, you know, some, some is, of course, acknowledging this point. But a lot of it has been wrapped up in what Joe Biden said, which is, hey, we've ended this 20-year conflict. The war in Afghanistan is over. That may be the case. But the crisis very much continues. Um, oh, what yeah. are your thoughts? No, I think you're 100% right with your assessment of the situation. Uh, and yes, that's essentially what we're in. The crisis continues. The war may literally be over in the sense that U.S. military forces are no longer engaged. This is nowhere near over at all. Um, I think you're right in terms of the number of green card holders versus passport holders. There are thousands of people still there. Um, I don't know how you call it a success when you leave people behind. Yes, there were some, uh, to, the, to, the, to be fair to the administration, who didn't want to leave extended family members and people who didn't want to leave their animals or whatnot. And those are conscious decisions that they make that they need to live with the, the choices they make. Right. We're, and I think yesterday, the focus in the administration seemed to be on the timing of it, right? Like this was going to happen no matter what, you know, what, you know, if we did this at another time. I agree that there would have been a rush at the airport because there were thousands of Afghans who wanted to get out of the country and they would have swarmed the airport, right? But we didn't have an obligation to take the entire civilian populace out of Afghanistan. That was never the point. So the timing isn't the issue. And it's, that's why it's being, the argument's being framed the wrong way. I think most Americans by polling that I've seen, including myself and including majority of veterans, agreed with both President Trump and President Biden's decision to, to leave Afghanistan. We had fought to a stalemate. We weren't going to win. It was now up to local security forces. We spent $2 trillion, $100 billion of that uh, you know, was on, I want to say, reconstruction alone. And then the rest was on you know, the Afghan security forces. And the rest was spent on the military, our military, to get things done. And now, all of a sudden, these people are, are left behind and, and the country collapsed. But 
President Biden initiated a policy review when he took office. He asked the Department of Defense for, for what the withdrawal options look like. Um, he overruled commanders at CENTCOM and U.S. forces in Afghanistan who had asked for a small stay-behind force and to keep Bagram Airfield and a few other things to happen. He basically said, no, he's ripping the Band-Aid off. That's it. We're going. He also waived uh, the requirement for a risk assessment that's mandated by Congress to assess the risk of the withdrawal operation. But my biggest complaint with all this and something I've been writing about for months, so it's not Monday morning quarterbacking. I've been on this for six months, along with other people who've been heavily involved in the interpreter issue is when you look at Afghanistan as a whole, right? And if you think, if you take a look at it, it's like, it looks like basically an oval with a, you know, a peninsula sticking off of it in rough terms. We basically had a bunch of remote outposts around the outer ring of the country towards the foreign borders. And then some more bases. And you started to work yourself centrally towards major, major places in Kandahar and Herat and Bagram and Kabul. We had some other major bases and finally the major airfields to get out. And so logically, you would take those outermost remote uh, outposts, close them, collapse those forces into the bigger bases, and then collapse those bases back in the airfields and then fly everybody out. Very logical in terms of logistics flow and people flow, right? What we didn't do is we made no effort at all to take those vulnerable Afghans who had passed the background checks and had gone through FBI, CIA, everything else, who spent years fighting alongside of us, as well as any American citizens who happened to be in the area and flew them out with the troops while they were leaving. Mm -hmm. We didn't make any effort to do that. And so everybody's focused on Kabul right now, right? A lot of the people I'm being contacted about, they're not even in Kabul. They're stuck in other areas of the country, you know, in Kandahar, Herat, or Nangnahar, or, or other places. And basically the government said, hey, there's one place in this entire country that you can get out, and that's Kabul. And some of these people are in valleys in between 10,000-foot mountains and, and live somewhere between the 3rd and the 4th century. And they're basically being told, figure out how to get to Kabul. And so we have tens of thousands of Afghans that we're responsible for, as far as I'm concerned, and thousands of Americans, if you include the green card holders, who remain stuck. And so how you frame that as a victory, um, just because you know you got 90% out, like you said, if it's leave nobody behind, and that's the and if that's the phrase and that's the measurement standard that we're measuring, then we failed. So does does leave no one behind? Does that just mean leave no one behind uh, without the protection of the U.S. military, or does that mean, you know, because I I think that there there are several ways to look at that. I mean, couldn't we look at it as you're not leaving them behind? You you talked about a little bit about the leverage uh, that's going to be used to get some of these people out. So they're being left without the U.S. military there, uh, but they're not necessarily, I think this is the, the Biden administration's position would be that they're not being left behind uh, in total. They're just being left behind without military presence in, in the sure. country. Um, so my, oh, go ahead. Sorry. So my response to that portion of the administration would be, well, if that's the case, then why don't we just pull out all the military forces and, and wait till the commercial airports reopen and just have people fly out on civilian aircraft? If there was no risk or threat, then why do we conduct an, uh, a non-combatant evacuation operation with the United States military? Why do we deploy 7,000 troops to the airfield and make such an effort to get U.S. persons into the airfield and fly them out an air bridge if there was no threat? So it kind of feels like we went through an entire week of, oh, my God, there's a threat. We had 13 service members die, suicide bombings, rocket attacks, small arms fire, and now being told, yeah, well, now that we're gone, it's no big deal. So when the airport opens next week, why don't you just kind of stroll down to Kabul International and see if you can catch a Delta flight to, to Washington and let me know that works out for you. I mean, that's essentially what we've told people. Right. The threat. The threat. So, so my question also is, um, how much do you trust uh, the, the Turks and uh, the Qataris when they take over uh, Karzai Airport? Um, do you think that this is a, a bad situation for the United States? The United States seems to have had a, a very interesting, if, if anybody's been following the relationship between yeah. the United States and Turkey over the last few years, it's like they love us, they hate us. You know, it's it's been this kind of roller coaster. Erdogan, Erdogan, the, the president. I mean, that, that man is a fundamentalist thug. He's the worst ally that we've got in NATO. That guy just sucks. His administration is horrendous. They were beating people in Washington the last time they were here. Yeah. He yeah. does what's convenient for him. He's a shit partner and an ally. I have absolutely no use for the Turks and what they've been up to in terms of the government. Turkish people are wonderful, and I have enjoyed every time I've gone there, but he's terrible. Um, I think, you know, the Turks and the Qataris will come in and the, uh, a flight from Qatar landed today. They are going to provide the physical, you know, and, and security requirements for the airport, and that'll include air traffic control and everything else. Policy for who gets in and out of the airport is still controlled by the Taliban, largely as it's been this week. 
we were like, hey, U.S. citizens, green card holders and SIV Afghans, please come to the airport. And the Taliban were like, that's cute. Uh, SIVs aren't going anywhere. Later in the week, it was like your green card holders can piss off. And finally, the last 48 hours before we left, it took an act of God to get even passport holders in the airport in some cases because they were saying no checkpoints. Hmm. So even if and when they get the airport open you know, in a week, right, and they get it all running again and the security situation works out and commercial airlines are willing to get in there, as you mentioned, Jason, we are at the mercy of the Taliban policy-wise in terms of who they're going to let out of the country. And that means everybody with an SIV visa who shows up at the airport without U.S. citizens is essentially identifying themselves as somebody who qualified for a special program for people who worked for U.S. forces during the war and has been awarded a special visa because they've gone through the background checks. And the way that it was set up, it's the most unique program in American history. Once the SIV holders make it to the United States, it automatically converts into a green card on a pathway to citizenship because of their service to our nation once they pass the background checks. So they're now basically going to tell the Taliban guards at the airport, you know, uh, who are you and where are you going? So my name is, you know, Abdul from wherever, from Kandahar, and I'm trying to fly to, uh, you know, Europe or America. On what? Oh, an SIV, an SIV visa. At that moment, they are identifying themselves to the guard that they are speaking to at the airport as somebody who is a collaborator and worked with the United States government. And so unless the Taliban are going to keep true to their word that there is no that there's a general amnesty and there'll be no reprisals, mm-hmm. which, again, we've seen to be utter and complete horseshit over the last week because they've been showing up at people's houses. They've been you know, threatening them, beating them, shooting them. I mean, I've got videos and all kinds of photos being sent in. So, I mean, it's happening. Um, so, 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 you know, provided that they get their forces under some sort of command and control and actually can make good on their words, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about the Afghans who are there that can't get out. Um, U.S. citizens, I think, will be in better shape. But even that's a crapshoot. That's left yeah. to whatever, you know, ragtag moron they've got outside the airport to do the right thing. Alex, so can, I, can, can I ask one follow up really it. quickly? So, sorry about this. Vince. No, I, I just, sorry. It, it kind of goes to something that Vince and I talked about several times, and I don't think either one of us. Uh, have come up with a a real good answer. Um, And it's something that I've been mulling over and I've said it on just about the last three episodes. And the question is about getting all the Afghans out. You mentioned an Afghan who fought alongside the the U.S., Mm -hmm. uh, fought along with us. Um, And I think your response was that we have a responsibility to get that person out of Afghanistan uh, now that the Taliban has taken over. My question is, um, from another perspective, could we look at it as where is the resistance to fundamentalism and the resistance to the Taliban going to come from if we, if everyone who fought in order to defeat them, you know, everyone who has ties to Afghanistan, the people who say this is our home country, this is our home, if we evacuate all of them and bring them to the United States or to Great Britain, where is the resistance? to what the Taliban is doing going to come from? Should it, should it be that some of those people are left um, in order to create a resistance force against the Taliban? Again, brilliant question. Uh, and it's something that we've kind of been talking about as well. And the Taliban, to a certain extent, said the same thing. Like, you need to stay and help your country. That's why we're not letting you leave. Um, at the same time, they're then whipping pregnant women and beating them. So those things don't really go together. But um right. Yeah, I mean, in economics, the concept is called what Dutch disease, right? When you've got a flight of your intellectual class who are going to leave, they're getting out of there for whatever reason, you know, in economic terms, it's because they're going to go to a more profitable industry. In this case, it's for safety reasons, right? But yeah, so what happens if there's a brain drain, essentially, and all those people who had the connections, the experience, the intellectual prowess, the capacity, the willpower to fight and decide to leave? Um, At the end of the day, that's predicated upon our decision that they should, or the notion that they should stay and fight, should they? I mean, it's up to, it's their... If we, if after 20 years, we couldn't defeat them militarily, we spent $2 trillion and this is how they decide that they want to live their lives. Like, look, dude, we tried for 20 years, we're done. And if we're not willing to put our military might behind it, then at some point, you know, uh, we got to acquiesce that they just, they want to get out of there. And the reason I say it's an obligation is we made a commitment. We passed a law specifically for this program. We told them that they would get their visas and that they would get out of there if they passed the background checks. Like everything else, the United States government turns, uh, touches for the most part, it turns to shit a giant bureaucratic mess. I've had people stuck in this process for 10 years. I had to find an organization called IRAP. Uh, it's the uh, International Refugee Assistance Pro- Project, along with uh, No One Left Behind, which was founded to help uh, Iraqi and Afghan interpreters, had to sue the State Department on behalf of my interpreter and 12 others in 2015, because they'd been screwing around with the paperwork for years. And we set up bureaucratic messes where like, 
had to pass security with, you know, FBI, CIA, NSA, everybody else within like a 30 day window. And if one of those agencies didn't get the work done in time, the whole thing got tossed out and the whole process started all over again. Right. And then in some cases it's like, Hey, you know, we found a phone contact that you were talking to some known shithead. Well, yeah, look at the map. He's my next door neighbor, right? Like I wasn't conspiring terrorist attacks with him. The guy literally was the guy who lived next door. I mean, think about you communicating with your own neighbors. And they're like, yeah, what, what kind of message traffic are you seeing? Like, hi, Bob, kids are home. I mean, like, like we're not doing plotting. So it's like, it's nonsense like that, right? And, and the, the vetting process is extremely important. So I don't want to you know, downplay that because I don't want any, anybody who's on vetted in this country either, regardless of what they've done. If they're you know, connected to bad people, they don't need to be here. But once they've gone through that process and we made a commitment and said, hey, we'll get you a visa, we're going to get you here. We made the commitment. And what the hell kind of people, if we make commitments like that as Americans, we don't fall through on it. And the next time we get dragged into some you know, war in another third world hellhole, who the hell's going to want to work for us? Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for your service um, after 10 years or so. And um, let us know when the Taliban don't cut your head off and things get peaceful in 10 years. And you know, maybe we can meet up and hang out somewhere in Europe. That'd be great. I mean, that's literally something that like, the wise comments that I'm getting coming in from folks who are like, how, how could people do this? So the characterization of this whole operation as a success is a stretch. Um, and I am, I'm incredulous as many other people are that we left all those people behind and that for the six months beforehand that we were drawing down forces on a plan that president Biden asked for and personally approved, you know, I agree, he, you know, the shit sandwich that he was handed before he got into office and was told to take a bite. Th- there's nothing you can do about that. Those are the actions of his predecessors between, uh, you know, Bush, Obama, and Trump, but the unilateral decisions that he rendered after taking office, which includes a policy review of what took place, a, authorizing a plan for the withdrawal, and then the failure to evacuate these people starting six months ago when we started collapsing these remote bases is on him. They own that. They can point back at Trump or whoever else they want. Those are decisions he made. Yeah, and this idea that it would, there would be some sort of panicked rush to the airport uh, during the exit, uh, I mean, I, it seems to me that it would be entirely dependent on what the conditions were in the country and how many safe places that there were available for people to go. So if we had Bagram yeah. and Kabul available, Correct. of course, that would matter. I mean, the idea that the United States was exiting was not in and of itself a surprise. This is, this is as publicly known as anything could be. Uh, dating back to especially the Trump administration and the arrangement that he had with the Taliban, there was clearly time, the clock was running. And so if the American government starts to begin the evacuation process, um, you know, it it didn't have to be as panicked as it was. It didn't have to be people hanging onto wheel wells uh, and and, and falling to their death. Uh, So in that way, you know, I'm concerned. Alex, I want to, I do want to ask you about uh, the safety of American citizens. You mentioned before that by and large, the Taliban knew better than to harm Americans and knows better than to harm Americans. And, you know, we're depending on that uh, right now no. um, to get them out. But we did see stories in um, these last few weeks of American citizens, perhaps dual citizens in some cases, who claimed that they were being beaten on the oh, way yeah. to the airport, who were bloodied in their attempts yep. to get to the airport, who were definitely stopped by the Taliban, incapable of getting to Kabul. And I worry... Mm-hmm. I worry that we haven't heard stories of Americans who have been killed in this process. Now, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if they have been, but there hasn't been a a tremendous amount of discussion about that possibility. And I wonder if you've heard anything about it. No, you're actually right. There hasn't been a tremendous amount of discussion on that. I haven't gotten any reports of any U.S. casualties as of to date. But yeah, I mean, a couple of days ago, I was walking a pregnant woman and her husband towards U.S. Marines to get them through the gates at the airport. Her husband had been beaten upside down, basically. I mean, he was hospitalized. He was covered in bandages. And she was beaten and whipped as a pregnant woman by a Talib outside the airport. And again, for the same reason you and I were discussing before, when you know, the previous question you asked, ethnically, you know, they look like the other folks in Afghanistan if they're dual citizens and born there because they're of the same you know, race, whatever. You know, there's multitude of races within the country, right, and ethnicities. Culturally, they look the same because they're dressed the same. They speak the same language with the same accent that they're local nationals. They just happen to be dual citizens and have a U.S. passport. So for some average Taliban out in the street, he doesn't know if that person's, you know, Mary Jane from Washington State or it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, a woman from, you know, another province like Logar province in Afghanistan. And if they're showing too much skin, they're just going to beat them or whip them. And that's just kind of that's how they do it. And it, basically, unless they're running around and says, I'm an American, which then makes them a target for kidnapping. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think violence will persist in that regard. I think you're 100 percent right, Vince. OK, well, Alex, I just any final thoughts for us on, uh, you know, what comes next here uh, and, you know, how we should how we should handle Afghanistan going forward. If, it seems to me that the most pressing crisis is the people who we owe responsibility yes. to. And first and foremost, American citizens and, and of course many, the many others that you've mentioned. 
So I think you're right. I think what needs to happen, the first thing is that the State Department needs to clarify for the media and for the public very clearly, are they talking about just citizens or green card holders? If that's the case, we got a lot more people than we're being let known, uh, that are being let on that are actually still left in country. Second thing is some sort of clear guidance because the, hey, wait for commercial flights to reopen. Everybody's basically like, what is going on right now? What are we supposed to do? And to date, we've been supporting official U.S. government operations that said, hey, be here this time, this place, and we'll get you out. And in some cases, some some backdoor stuff to get people where they needed to be and get them in the gates. That's all done. There's no more diplomats, no more service members, no more intelligence. Prevent- We're gone. It's all gone. There's there's literally nobody left. So people are now saying, where do we go? Well, like, the airfield's not functioning. Can we go across the border with Pakistan or Uzbekistan or somewhere else? You know, do you want to flee with your children on foot somewhere? Uh, and, you know, what, what about rescue flights? Is that, guys, there's no functioning air traffic control in the country right now. There's no planes flying in because there's no functioning air traffic control. And from the U.S. government perspective, I think there's there is a tacit understanding of what we were all doing because we were in connection or in contact with the U.S. government personnel on the military, state and intelligence side, informing them of everything that we were doing, people we were working with, making sure they were registered. So. Though that I think there was, while well, we were supporting an official operation, not the other way around, right? The U.S. government wasn't supporting Digital Dunkirk. Digital Dunkirk was supporting the U.S. government and the folks on the ground who needed to get out. So I want to make sure that that's clear. That can't be the case anymore because there's no U.S. government effort. And from what I'm hearing from senior administration officials, you know, there's obviously a lot of risk in them supporting private rescue efforts, you know, for because who knows who these people are? They may be very well, you know, former Delta Force SEAL team members, this, that, the other thing who are there, who are qualified, know what they're doing and get people out. And then there also might be some high functioning moron with like room temperature IQ and a, and a pair of cargo pants and a cowboy, you know, and a camouflage hat who wants to go in and play hero. And those are the people who scare me. So um, it's right now, it's, I think a lot of folks are trying to navigate through like who's real, who has the ability to do stuff and who doesn't. And we're getting word that the US government simply isn't going to support it because the liability and the risk of having non-government people that they're not under their control doing stuff is simply not something they're going to undertake. So it's a bit of uncertainty right now. And I think it's probably going to take another week to shake out before we really have an idea of what the hell is going to happen. So I have, I have one final question uh, that kind of sparked in my mind after what you just said, you said that there's no intelligence presence um, in Afghanistan right now. Am I correct? Did did I hear you say that? Because that terrifies me. So yes. It, I mean, that, okay, I'm sorry. I was going to say, yes, these are not the droids you're looking for. But I think, yeah, the embassy's gone. The majority of forces are gone. Uniforms are gone. So there's no more military intelligence on the ground. But, you know, we 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 still maintain intelligence presence around the world, um, you know, in countries where we don't have a U.S. military presence, which is always the joke with the senior CIA case officers you deal with that all these young kids are spoiled because they got the U.S. military for protection where these guys out during the Cold War and other, you know, high threat environments were operating solo and really taking all the risk themselves. Mm. That's essentially what we're heading back to. So what that presence looks like for covert collection, and everything else is the purview of the Central Intelligence Agency and a few right. others in the intelligence community. And exactly what that posture and footprint looks like going forward will obviously remain classified for a whole host of reasons. Um, but I can certainly tell you that the, whatever presence we have is certainly nowhere near as big as it was a week ago. And our ability right. to operate, our ability to collect and everything else has been significantly diminished. I mean, we're essentially down to basically nothing, but not that we weren't for months. I mean, if you think about it, we got down to 625 people at one point, and then we had to flex back to 7,000 to secure the airfield. So we were down for a while. Um, you know, yes, we're big, dumb, and blind to a certain extent right now. And so it's going to be up to the Intel community to, you know, get back in and establish a foothold, of, you know, for, for whatever it is they're doing now, which again, I don't want to get into any of those details, um, uh, but that's, that's it. That's what we have. So unless... I've been told the reason we decided not to take the, the Taliban up on their offer for a continued diplomatic presence for right now, right, is security. Because for the embassy to function, it needs to be secure. And right now, there's no there's no guarantee of security. So until that kind of happens or there's a foreign embassy that's going to remain open, that's willing to house an intersection for us, I don't see that happening. So do, do you have any concerns about the resurgence of uh, certain organizations? Of course, we see ISK, but... Yeah, uh, you know, organizations like Al Qaeda and their ability to strike to strike uh, the United States. I mean, I, I personally, you know, I, I argued on the show that I think terror organizations in that part of the world, just as we've evolved in the way that we conduct warfare, um, I think that they've evolved in in the way that they conduct terror. And I think that one of the things that they do is convert people within the United States using the internet. You know, that's, that's probably the best way rather than trying to get somebody, you know, to, to 
England and then to the United States to fly, you know, a flight from Logan to JFK. I think that that is the way they do it. But is there any concern that you have that maybe some of these groups may get the capability to uh, attack the United States uh, and take refuge in Afghanistan? So I think you hit the nail on the head again. And that's that um, when it comes to the terrorism threat, right? We've been really good at using the oceans that we've got right now as, as buffers, as well as keeping people from getting into the country who don't need to be here because they pose a terrorist threat, right? And I think you referenced correctly, you know, the internet being a primary means right now of radicalization of some of these folks, uh, you know, then become the homegrown terrorists or people who are radicalized on the internet or self-radicalized. And that's where we've seen a lot of the follow-on threats from. A lot of Al-Qaeda's leadership, uh, you know, we, the government's been very open about it, has been operating in Pakistan. The Pakistanis have denied it, obviously lying through their teeth, uh, but that is what it is. So I think the Taliban will, t- will continue to crack down on groups like ISIS-K because there's a, there's a self-interest in ensuring that their government remains stable and secure because they don't like the Taliban any more than they like us. But there are groups like Al-Qaeda who are not as, I mean, ISIS basically formed because they told Al-Qaeda at one point that the Al-Qaeda guys that you guys aren't, aren't conservative and fundamentalist enough for you. So, I mean, you can imagine how bad they have to be to tell Al-Qaeda they're not fundamentalist enough <laughs> as an organization, right? So Al-Qaeda will, will they're, they're operating, they're back. They're going to have sanctuary to a certain extent. Um, you know, the Taliban is, is basically saying, hey, there's not going to be a problem. You know, we're, there won't be attacks against the U.S. I mean, that's, that's a crapshoot. Right. I mean, they, they can't guarantee that, um, you know, any more than we could if we were unless we were there kind of taking the fight to them. So um, in terms of a guarantee, I, I don't see it at all. Um, and I mean, really, let's, let's talk about what were they doing in Afghanistan before 9-11 anyway. Right. That, that was there was the training bases for Al Qaeda and everything else. But the people who attacked us, they, they went through flight training in the United States. Right. They came in from Europe, everywhere else. And so it was organized and plotted and there was money involved and everything else from Afghanistan. But. That was largely it, right? That was the headquarters of the organization, the reason that we went after them to make sure there wasn't an organized headquarters to, to, to conduct attacks like that in the future. But with technology and cell phones and everything else, obviously the intelligence community then becomes the most important in finding these people, but they have the ability to operate just about anywhere. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah. is the residual threat there greater than it is in Iraq or Syria that we should have a, a stay behind counterterrorism force? I don't know. I'm no longer in government to see the classified material to make that assessment myself. But what I don't understand is a calculated decision to leave troops in Iraq and Syria because we have a terrorism threat, much like that, Al-Qaeda and ISIS running around there, right? And yet we have the same thing in Afghanistan, but we're not leaving force behind. The arguments for and against are largely the same in both situations, right? Right. And yet, we're, yet the, so for me, there's an inconsistent logic flow between those two situations. And yes, I get it, you know, we're, but we're not friends with the, the Assad regime, right? They're just okay with us being there because the ISIS folks are a threat to him too. So they're like, they'll bitch about us being there on public, on television, but they're perfectly fine with it. You want to spend your money and your troops to go kill the people who are trying to overthrow my government? Not a problem. You know, right. you know, park it and let me know how that works out. Um, and very much the same thing with, um, with, the, uh, uh, with, with the Iraqis too, right? And the reason that the Iranians have been cooperating with us because the Iranians have wanted to see a Shia government in Iraq Right for a long time because they're Shia, they're Shia Muslims, right? In terms of uh, themselves as a nation, and the um, the Iraqi government now represents the sixty percent Shia majority, and then neighboring Syria, uh, Bashar al-Assad is an Alawite Shia, which only make up ten percent of the population there. So he is much like Saddam, a member of minority ethnic group, uh, basically repressing the majority through a, a dictatorship. And then the next door to them is Lebanon, and southern Lebanon is under the control of Hezbollah, which is another, uh, again, Shia Islamic group uh, that Iran largely helped to found because they spoke Arabic, and it gave them an opportunity to use a proxy force elsewhere in the Middle East because they have Arabs who speak Arabic and share similar religious beliefs. So for the Iranians, they converted the entire country to Shia Islam, which is about 97% under the Safavid dynasty in the in the 18th or the 17th century, right? And they used scholars from Lebanon to do it. And so you've got pockets of Shia in Yemen, other places in the Gulf, and then also in southern Lebanon. So the Iranians have wanted to control foreign policy, essentially from Tehran through Baghdad, through Damascus, through southern Lebanon to the Mediterranean, so they can also you know, basically go after the Israelis. And so for them, the reason that they didn't toy with us when we went back into Iraq to go after ISIS was the same reason. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. If the Americans are going to stabilize the Iraqi government, which is our ally, then we'll work with them. So in Syria, where we were going after Syrian forces, especially after they were gassing their own people, the Iranians were allied with the Syrians against us 
in Syria, but also allied with us against ISIS. And then in Iraq, they were allied with us with the, with the, to support the Iraqi government and against ISIS. So it was like a country by country scenario, depending on what the mutual overlapping interests are for how people were going to operate. And so that's the geopolitics that's kind of driving us in the background. Yeah, remarkable. Alex Pletsis, yeah. uh, we want to thank you for uh, stopping by today and chatting with us and for your ongoing service to the country. Uh, really appreciate that. And uh, and we'd love to have you back sometime to talk about this and a lot more. Thank you. I'd love to. Thank you guys thank as well. You. And, and as thank for you. the, the training and all this that may, kind of made this happen, um, you guys paid for that the first time around. That was your tax dollars. So thank you for funding my little boy fantasies. Appreciate it. <laughs> Got it, man. And then in the meantime, uh, thank you to all of you who've watched or listened to this episode of Vincent Jason Save the Nation. If it's your first time, you can do it again by subscribing anywhere you can find a podcast. That's Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Also, go to that YouTube page, like, subscribe, share, and comment on the Daily Caller's YouTube page to make sure everyone gets to take a bite of a show like this. Thanks so much, guys. You too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Jason. You guys. Talk to you.